Uh, I believe that's it for announcements. Let me um, pray for us, and then we will get into God's Word together. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, for this Sunday of worship. God, that everyone here in this room, we have set this time aside. We... I think whether we even realize it or not, God, we are here to be reminded of who you are, of your glory, of your goodness, of your grace. And in the midst of what feels like an increasingly crazy world, an increasingly out of control uh, society, we want to be reminded, God, that you are in control and that you are good and that you have good things for us. Uh, we pray, God, that you would really ground us in that this morning as we step into your word. Would you remind us not only of who you are, not only of all that you've done, God, but what you've called us to be, who you have called us to be in you, how you desire us to impact the world, and also to be wary, God, to be careful um, against the enemy and all that he wants to do to derail us. Lord, um, give us strength and conviction in you this morning. We entrust it to you. We thank you and we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, I attended one church for most of my life. It was a church that I grew up in. It was a church I was like, you know, born into, and then I attended for a long time, and um, for what, probably 20-something years, and then when I was in my 20s, that church split, and then, um, so there were two churches left after that, right, split into two churches, and those two churches each also split again. You know, one church split into another two churches, and then the other church split into another two churches. And um, and then there was one more split. One of, the, one of the churches that split from those two churches split up into another two churches. And, um, and a lot of people in this room are from that church or one of the churches that that church split into, um, which is... Kind of interesting. Now, I remember uh, when I was first going through that first church split, and unfortunately, this is not like a super unique story. Uh, one time I was in, in fact, I was in Guatemala on missions, and it was during one of these splits, and I was talking to my friend, you know, in Spanish, and you know, who's from Honduras, and we were just like talking, and he's like, what's wrong? Like, you seem really sad. And I'm like, yeah, it's because my church is going through a church split right now. And he was like, oh, man, yeah, my church too. And so his church was also going through a church split. At the same time, my church was going through a church split. His church is in Honduras. You know, my church was in America. And probably most of the people in this room, if you've had any experience being part of a church for a long time, you have either been a part of this story or you've heard this story. And I remember at that time it made me think, oh, like, What's going on here? Like, why does this happen? Right? This shouldn't happen in church. And oftentimes when you are part of 
this kind of situation or you hear about these situations, the reasons that churches split, oftentimes, they're like dumb. It's like somebody offended somebody or there's some small group of people that either wants more influence or there's some kind of money thing that happens. You know, sometimes there's a scandal that happens, something happens like that. But actually, uh, many of the church splits that I am familiar with, they're not actually related to any kind of scandal. It's just that people couldn't get along. Some people wanted one thing. Another group of people wanted another thing. They could not agree on it. And then the church ends up splitting. Sometimes the issue is something so small or trivial as like an organ. Some people wanted this kind of organ and another group of people wanted this kind of organ and that becomes a big, this is a kind of famous story in a huge church, but they had this big controversy over an organ or like a piano or like the color of the walls or the pews. Like these are real things. These are real reasons why churches split and the when it you know we we planted a church right and when we planted the church myself and none of the people who were part of our initial group none of us was like yeah like like let's split in like 30 or 40 years you know like let's plant this church right now and then later down the line we'll probably have some argument about something and then we'll just split you know and then maybe that church will split like this isn't multiplication you know this is bad right these are these are people just fighting and then like breaking up essentially no church i think when they're planted most churches when they're planted when they started they're not thinking oh we're going to have some problems down the line you know, or this might happen, or that might, there might be factions and groups and cliques, and people are not going to get along, and people are going to say certain things, and people are going to be divided. That doesn't, people aren't usually thinking things like that. And the past few years, I should say, maybe the past decade, has actually been brutal for the church, the church, capital C, big church, because if you follow these kinds of stories, you know, Mars Hill, Carl Lentz, Brian Houston, Ravi Zacharias. Like, there's been a lot of, you know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago about the SBC and the report that came out. A lot of these stories have been coming out and piling up. And there, there I have personal stories, people I know personally that have been a part of some of these types of things. And what can we do? You know, like, we shouldn't be naive, as a church, we shouldn't step into being church, being a part of the life of the church, thinking things are always going to be good. Things are always going to be easy. Things are always going to go the way that they're supposed to go. Everyone's always going to be united. I'm going to always get along. I'm going to always, you know, feel connected because that's not reality. That's not the truth. There will be hardship, and sometimes the adversity comes from the outside, right? It's opposition. It's like what we looked at last week. It's people telling you, be quiet and don't talk about this. And sometimes it's from the inside. It's from within the church. There are people who have an agenda other than the gospel and other than Jesus. And how can we 
prepare for such a situation and how can we handle those types of things when they come? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Acts. And we are in a series in the book of Acts, the Acts um, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the early church. That's really what it's about. And it is, uh, essentially, it is a, a history, right? It is, it is telling what happened in the early church. And so it includes stories such as the one that we're going to read today, which is not a particularly good story, right? For anyone who thinks, oh, the Bible, you know, it's just trying to make the church look good. Well, I mean, anyone like that hasn't really read the Bible because there are tons of stories that make the church look terrible. And uh, this is one of those kinds of stories. And so this is Acts 4, 32, not at the beginning here, but, but it'll, it'll get a little worse later. But here's uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. And this is... Uh, this is God's word. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what, the, what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so a couple points today. Okay, first point is this. Gospel generosity in the church is powerful. Gospel generosity in the church is powerful. So we looked in Acts 2 and we saw kind of a glimpse of the church's life. We're looking here in Acts 4 and we see another glimpse, another snapshot of what the early church was like. And this is an incredibly powerful, unified picture of what the church could be. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Isn't that incredible? Everybody was unified. Everyone was together. Everyone was for one thing. They all identified together as one because Jesus was the one who, uh, with, with, with whom they identified. That was the core of their identity, right? So it wasn't about whether you were you know, old or young or a man or a woman or what your occupation was or what your status was, whether you're rich, whether you're poor. None of that stuff really mattered. It, di it didn't mean that it didn't exist, but it didn't matter. People felt like, oh, we're all one in identity and purpose because we're forgiven by Jesus. We're forgiven by the cross. And we're living post power of the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that's what we're all about now. That's what we're all doing. And people are just giving their testimony, right? People are like, they're testifying to the risen Lord Jesus. And that's what they're all about. To the point that if there are people who are poor among them, there are some people who are poor, obviously. Some of them are wealthier. Some of them are poorer. And if the people who are poor didn't have things, those who were wealthier just sold their land. So owning land, you know, this was kind of a big deal. These would be more the, of the wealthier people. And the wealthier people would say, hey, we have poorer people among us. 
And they would have like legitimately poor people. I'm not talking about when you're in college and you're like, oh, I'm so poor right now. You know, it's like, well, your net worth is connected to that of your parents, right? So if your parents have money, you have money basically at that at that time. You know, same thing if you're in high school or younger, right? You're, you're, it's, it's really what your parents have, right? That that's what that's what your money is. Um, so you're not poor, probably, right? Unless you're unless you're legitimately living on the street. But there are people in this church that are legitimately living on the street. And there are people who don't have homes. There are people who don't have lands, of course. Many of these people were, like, sick or lame. You know, they couldn't do certain things. And not everybody in the church, right? Remember, a couple weeks ago, we looked at that story where they, they heal the lame man, right? But that's not happening to every single person who's sick, right? Not every single person who's sick is getting healed. Some people, they just have to live with their illness. Some people have to live with their, their struggles, and so other people see this in the church and believing, it says that they, they had this sense, they had everything in common, right? Like what's mine is yours. That's how you feel with your family, right? If Boomy, you know, my wife, if she gets a raise at work, I don't think like, cool, you got a raise, you know, and then I didn't. No, I'm like, we both got a raise, right? Like, I got a raise recently from church. You know, it's like, oh, cool. We got a raise, right? Like, we, we, our income has increased. I don't think, oh, you have your separate money, and then I have my separate money, and we're just, like, live separately. No, obviously, it benefits both of us, right, together. You know, my kids don't think that. <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't think about it at all. But they, they obviously, it affects them what happens to us. But imagine everybody in church thinks that. Right? When somebody else gets a raise, when somebody else gets a job, when somebody else buys a house, or if you do that, you're thinking, this is for everybody, not just me. Like, everyone rejoices together. That's what's happening here. You know, obviously, and then at the end of the story, it's like Barnabas, he does this incredible act. You know, Barnabas, he appears a lot in the Bible. He appears in Acts, you know, many times. His name means son of encouragement, and he goes with Paul on his missionary journeys. He is like, he believes in John Mark when Paul doesn't, you know, who eventually writes Mark. Like, there are a lot of things that Barnabas does right, and this is one of the things he sells some property that belonged to him. He gives it to the apostles' feet, laid it at the apostles' feet. It means he said, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want with this money. He said, hey, you guys are the leaders. I'm going to sell this, and I'm going to give you all the money, and I'm going to trust that you're going to distribute it the best way that you see fit. So that is just an incredibly humble, generous act. Now, this kind of generosity predicated on the gospel, this is very powerful. This is probably one of the most powerful expressions of the gospel because it's not just people saying stuff. It's not just people being like, oh, yeah, Jesus loves you, and I love you, and, you know, everything's cool, and everything's great, and somebody's suffering, right? James says this. If you see someone suffering on the street, and you're just like, oh, yeah, keep warm and well-fed, you know, be blessed, brother, and you just walk away, that's, what are you really doing for that person? You're not actually doing anything. In fact, you're kind of insulting them, right? If you have money and you see someone who doesn't have money and they're like starving and you're like, oh, be blessed, brother, you know, and then you just kind of walk away, well, you're kind of just like spitting in their face, right? You're kind of just not giving them anything. On the flip side, 
When this kind of generosity is exercised, it is such a powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus is everything. Like money is one of the most important things like in our lives, practically speaking, because you need money to basically do anything. You need money for food. You need money for clothes. You need money for shelter. You need money to live, essentially. I know, you know, you just need God to live, you know, but if God wants you to live, he's going to let you get money somehow. He's going to let you have a job so that you can make money so you can provide for your family or somebody can provide for you. So giving that away to people in need says there's something in my life that is more important, that is more valuable, that is more powerful than this thing that I need to live. I remember one time uh, I was a it was like earlier in ministry, but um, we were doing missions at, at the church, and you know we have been preparing, and I was in charge of it, and so I was kind of getting the teams ready and stuff. And this one person, this this you know girl, this woman, she comes up to me, and she's like, "Hey, I prepared this for missions." And she just, I mean, she didn't even know who was going or anything, you know, it wasn't like she got some kind of personal letter. She just had something prepared already. She gave it to me and it was a check for $5,000, you know, and I was like, and she, you know, this person wasn't like particularly rich or anything, but I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, thank you so much. Right. And, you know, obviously that money was going to help people in need. It was eventually used, you know, overseas. And to both plant seeds of the gospel and also just literally just help people, like help provide for their needs. And the thing about that is you don't, unless you're super rich, right, you don't just do that out of nowhere. And again, this person wasn't super rich. She thought about that for like the, the whole past, you know, year or more. And she was like saving and she had budgeted this out and she was like, okay, this is, I'm going to use this for this. And so the whole time, right, it wasn't like somebody came up to her and she was like, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to missions. Like, can you help me? And like, oh yeah, cool. Uh, what, what, it was like 20 bucks. You know, you know, just like gave it out, right? Like it wasn't one of those situations. She had thought about it and she had prayed about it and she even like prayed for that money, right? She was like, and I would too. If I was given that kind of money to, for that, I would be like praying like, God, you better use this money. Right? Like that's what I'd be thinking. I wouldn't say that probably, but I'd be thinking that. So God would know anyway. But that, that's the, the situation. Right? You don't just like do that. This kind of generosity. And look, Barnabas, when he sold his field, right, I bet he's not like, ah, what I need a field for? And just like sold it, right? He had to think. Right, a plan. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, if you sell something and then you give all the money and then you just become poor, that probably doesn't make sense either, right? Because now you're just in the situation of the people that you were helping. So that's probably not the wisest thing either. Gospel generosity in the church is incredibly powerful. In fact, this was one of the strongest witnesses of the early church. I shared this before, but the early church was very compassionate. They would help people in need, even though they would get nothing in return. They would go into leper colonies. They would go where people were sick. They would spend time with them. They would give not just money. They would give their time. They would give their effort. They would give their service. They would provide it willingly. They would go and seek out the people in need so that they could help them. So before I move on real quick, if you want to be generous, particularly with your money, 
um, you have to actually like plan for it. You have to actually budget that, right? It has to be a part of what you think, you know, like Boomi and I, we have a budget and there's part of our budget is offering, part of our budget is mission giving, part of our budget is charitable giving, and part of our budget is gifts. So those things are built into our, our budget. You know, if we didn't do that, then we wouldn't have money to do those things because that's how money works <laughs> in case you weren't, you didn't know. But if you don't have money to do things and you don't budget it, you're not going to have money to do those things. It's just going to disappear and you're going to end up in debt probably, which is something we try not to do. So that's real quick. I'm just real quick, you know, application point if you want to be generous, right? If you feel like you've been given something by God in the gospel, and hopefully, if you're a Christian, you do feel like you have been given something by God. And you want to be generous. And that's not just with money, but with time as well. That has to be a part of your plan, right, to be able to give something to others in the church. So this gospel generosity is powerful. Now, unfortunately, there's a flip side. And we're going to read about it here. So this is Acts 5. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain as your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This is kind of a crazy story, okay? So Ananias and Sapphira, this couple... They see what Barnabas did, right? And they're like, oh, Barnabas sold the field, you know, and gave the proceeds. And this isn't in the Bible, but they were probably like, dude, everybody's like praising Barnabas. I don't talk about Barnabas, son of encouragement. Like, well, you know, they're probably, that's what they're thinking, seeing what they do here. But what they do is they're like, hey, let's, let's sell a piece of property too. We'll sell some property. Now, it says they conspired together, so it's not like one dragged the other one into it. They talked about it. They planned it out. They're like, let's do this. They sell the property, and then they give something to the church, but they hold back some of it for them. So they sell some property. Maybe it's like you know a million-dollar property. I mean, definitely not in that time, but let's just call it our time. They sell a million-dollar house, and they give some of it. Let's say they gave half of it, $500,000. They kept $500,000. Now, if that were the situation, you might think, is that like the worst thing in the world? You know, I mean, they still gave something, right, to the church. It's not like they didn't give anything to the church. They gave half of it, maybe, or I don't know, some percentage of it. They kept back some percentage of it. Is that like really so bad? Is that worth God killing him on the spot? Now, of course, I mean, the same thing happens to Sapphira, 
here. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah, that would be scary, right? If somebody sold their house and then brings $500,000 and they're like, hey, here's $500,000, you know, and, and we're like, is that the full amount? And they're like, yes, this is the full And then they die right here in front of everybody. That would be freaky, right? Like, I would be freaked out. I'd be like, what the, what is going on here? Now, is it worth them dying? Peter asks them, Peter asks Ananias a bunch of questions, right? If you go back here, he asks them a bunch of questions. Some are explicit, some are implied, right? He says, why, why did you allow Satan to fill your heart? Right? Why are you lying to the Spirit? Why did you put aside some of the money for yourself? Didn't you know, he says, didn't you know that you had the right of ownership? So he's saying, don't you know that you didn't have to sell this property at all? There's nothing, like, <clears throat> what, what Peter's saying is, we never put out an announcement and said, everybody needs to sell everything they have right now and bring it next week. They never said that. There was no command here. There was nothing that had to be done. See, and Peter's asking these questions so that he can uncover this evil, the evil in his heart, so that he can understand. He said, you didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to bring it. You, you could have just said that you're keeping half of it. Right? There were any number of things that they could have done. He said, couldn't you have done whatever you wanted with the money? Like, you didn't have to bring it here. You didn't have to bring it and, and tell me that this is everything that you sold it for. And then he says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Why have you contrived this? See, the gospel, and we've been hitting this point, you know, week in and week out, and we're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. But the gospel is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. Right? Like my story can be part of the gospel in, in terms of what Jesus has done. But the, my story is not the point of the gospel. Your story is not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is Jesus. Jesus' story. What Jesus has done. The fact that he came to be with us. He lowered himself. He humbled himself to be with us, to live among us, to serve us, to die for us, even to the point of crucifixion and death on a cross. That's the story of the gospel. And then he rose again from the dead so that we could know and so that we could have eternal life. But what, what Ananias and Sapphira did is they twisted the gospel. They perverted it, right? And instead of the gospel being about Jesus, they made it about themselves. They said, I'm going to use Jesus to glorify myself. The gospel is the story about, of what God has done to the glory of Jesus. But when we twist that story, 
what you get is this hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy in the church is a perversion of the gospel. It's changing it so that Jesus is about my glory now. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira saw here. They say, we have an opportunity to appear holy, to appear as better than we are. Barnabas got praised for what he did. So why don't we kind of do the same thing, but without the heart and not do it for Jesus, but do it for ourselves? And this perversion of the gospel, that's what God is punishing them for because they never had to do this. They didn't have to sell anything. They didn't have to give anything. They chose to use Jesus as a tool to glorify themselves. You know, in 2018, there was this story about um, David and, and Luis Turpin. I don't know if you guys know this couple, but uh, in you know the following year, they were sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for uh, torturing 12 of their 13 children. So... Um, you know, they beat their children. They deprived them of sleep. They shackled them to their beds with, with chains because the mom was scared that the kids were, um, I guess, eating too much sugar and caffeine, although she was the one buying a bunch of soda because apparently the dad needed soda so that he wouldn't fall asleep on the drives. Like, this is a very strange story. Uh, eventually, the 17-year-old, you know, uh, girl, she jumped out a window to escape and then called 911. She stole a phone from inside the house. She jumped out a window. She called 911. I mean, this is like true heroism. She calls 911 and then basically uh, she very calmly says that her parents are like torturing them and like keeping them imprisoned in their own house, which is crazy also, but she's so like used to it that this is not, you know, she's not like in shock or something because she has just become completely used to this. She calls him. She says, we live in filth. Sometimes I wake up and can't breathe because of how dirty the house is. She said she had not bathed for almost a year. Uh, the children were forced to stay up at night and sleep during the day. They were given carefully rationed meals, generally one meal, a combination of lunch and dinner per day. And the meals consisted of bologna and peanut butter sandwiches. Ugh, with all those, it just sounds disgusting. Uh, the worst part, of course is that some of the children described their household as a religious place where they believed what was happening to them was God's will. And one of them quoted a Bible verse about trusting in God. Now, that's not bad because they had faith in God. That's a good thing. But it's bad because the parents were clearly using God as a justification to abuse their own kids, which is horrific which is a complete, again, perversion of the gospel. It is elevating self and using God as a justification. They never really, like they said in the trial, uh, we love them and we wanted the best for them. I'm just like, how could you possibly think that? You know, <clears throat> again, we talked about the, what's going on with the SBC recently. More than 700 cases of abuse covered up by the leadership in the name of the cooperative program, basically in the name of Jesus, because the gospel has to get out and people can't find out about this kind of stuff. Protecting the powerful from accountability while silencing, discrediting, and alienating the victims. You know, kicking them out of the church, basically saying that they're wrong. I saw, I saw a video of 
this is like on YouTube, but there's a pastor who comes up and he confesses basically that he had an affair um, many years ago and that he's stepping down, he's resigning. And, you know, it seems at first like, like it's a genuine, it's, it's a confession, you know? So he's, he says that that happened. He's resigning, obviously like it's sin, you know, there's no justification. That's what he says from the pulpit. And then, you know, he's, he leaves. But after he leaves, uh, the person who was victimized says, I was only 16, you know, which is something that he obviously failed to mention in his confession. And, you know, and then the people obviously get upset and they're like saying, you have to, you know, you have to like say that and you have to own it and you have to repent of it, uh, you know, which he kind of, I don't, he kind of doesn't, and then he just, like, leaves. Look, a lot of this is, like, ugly, right? And the reason I'm bringing it up, I should, I'll, I'll say two things real quick before we move on. One is the things that happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, it was, like, 700 cases. That's terrible, and it's horrific, and it's a lot. Too many. Way too many. But there's, like, you know... There's like tens of millions of people in the in the SBC. So I don't want it to seem like, oh, there's just the church is filled with evil people. I, I don't actually think that. I think there, but in any situation, okay, in any church, and particularly in the church, because you have a bunch of people being gracious. You have a bunch of people wanting to give the benefit of the doubt. You have a bunch of people wanting to be honest and vulnerable. And in that situation, there's always a risk that somebody is going to come in and take advantage of that. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They're like, oh, these, these people, like they're going to give us glory if we do this. And so let's abuse this system that's set up for us to abuse it. Anybody who comes into church who doesn't actually believe the gospel has an opportunity to abuse people. See, that, that, that risk is there. And so what can we do as Christians? Well, one, can we ever completely stop sin from happening before it happens? Well, the answer to that is no, we can't. Sin is a human condition. Every human is prone to sin, Christian or not. And partly because Satan is real and because sin is real, there's always this, there's always going to be this kind of risk. You know, does it mean that, because we can't like, you can never legislate, you can't make laws that's going to stop people from breaking the law. No matter what the laws are, some people will always break them, right? This is why the law doesn't work, both in the Bible and, like, in society, right? No matter how strict the law is, if the law is like you can't, anybody who litters is going to be sniped, right? Like, there are snipers everywhere, and anybody who ever jaywalks, you know, you're just going to, like, like, even if that were the reality, one time you'd be really late, and you'd be like, oh, I'm just going to risk it because that's how we are. We're humans, and there's always going to be times when people, no matter what the law is, they're going to break it. No matter what the punishment is, they're going to break it. So then what can we do? Does it mean like, oh, we just can't do anything? Well, here's, 
here's a, a few things, okay, I think that we can do to try to be, actually pursue holiness instead of hypocrisy. To actually try to be like Jesus instead of just trying to look like Jesus. So, first thing, regularly, actually, I'm sorry, first thing, revere God. Revere God. Why does God do this when in the early stages of the church? Why does he just kill two people dead instantaneously when this sin is happening? Because what results? What does it say at the end of the passage? It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Don't mess around with God. Okay, God is not somebody to be used. He is not a tool for you to advance your life, to advance your happiness, to advance your comfort, to advance your whatever you want, right? God's not there to make you rich or to make you famous or to make much of you. He wants to disabuse people of that notion immediately. And so when these people come in and say, hey, there's this opening here. Here's this opportunity to use God so that I can be thought of as better. He kills them immediately. So that there will be a reverent fear of God. We do need a reverent fear of God. If you have Christ let me assure you of something. If you have Christ, there's no condemnation. Okay, there's no hell. There's no residual punishment. There's no purgatory. There's nothing in the Bible that says, yes, Jesus covers over all your sins, but <clears throat> if you did really bad stuff, then there's like, you still have to go through some punishment. No, there's nothing like that in the Bible, right? Jesus' sacrifice is 100% covers over all your sin. That doesn't mean that your sin isn't terrible. It doesn't mean sin doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean sin isn't horrific, because it is. See, these two people deserve to die, just like all of us do. But for the grace of God, we, we don't. God doesn't strike us down. So revere God. And here's the second thing. Regularly confess your sin. Regularly confess sin. Confession needs to be a regular part of our lives. Here were the characteristics of the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. They were fakers. Okay, they were fakers. Two, they were attention seekers. They wanted attention for themselves. They didn't like it when other people were getting attention, and they likely didn't even like it when God was getting attention. They wanted to be the center of attention. They were liars. They were greedy. They were deceivers, right? So not only did they lie, but they planned an elaborate lie. They planned an elaborate deception. They said, here's what we should do, and then we're going to sell this, and then we're going to keep some of it for ourselves, and then we're going to give it, and then people are going to think we're great. And so they had a whole plan, a system, and they were spirit grievers, if we don't want to fall into that, we must be vigilant about our confession. Right? Confess to the people in your life, your family, you know, your parents, your siblings, 
your wife, your kids, your life group, your friends, when we are being selfish or greedy or lazy or lustful or unloving or unforgiving or arrogant, if any of those things and many other things creep into our lives and we just say, ah, but you know, like not confessing it is the first step to justifying it, right? When you stop calling it sin, it's like, ah, but you know, I was tired, I was busy, I was stressed. When that becomes the mantra for why you do the things that you do, you know, oh, you don't know though, like our history, you don't know what's happened in our lives. And then you just start justifying sin. Well, that's the first step to just becoming a hypocrite, right? A hypocrite isn't somebody who sins because everybody sins. A hypocrite is somebody who believes themselves to be better than other people while still being in sin. Often the same exact sin that they're railing against for another person. Like they themselves are greedy or selfish, but they hate greedy and selfish people. You know, they themselves are legalistic, but they hate legalism. They themselves, you know, struggle with what, whatever of these sins, but then they don't like seeing it in other people. That's a hypocrite. Rather than saying, wow, I understand you because I struggle in the same way. Revere God, regularly confess your sin. Here's the third thing, okay? Repent. Repent. Confession and repentance are not the same. Confession is telling someone. Now, I, I should note here, you know, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter, he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? So what we say in community, like what we say to each other, also has implications for what we are saying to God. Like if you're lying to people in your life, you're also lying to God. Now, repentance is a little different than confession. You know, what it literally means is to turn around. So essentially, stop. If there's sin in your life, right, rather than keeping it in your life and being like, ah, oh, you know, but like one day I'll figure it out, right? Like one day I'll, I'll stop being lazy. Like one day, you know, I'll stop lusting. You know, one day I'll stop, I'll stop being greedy. I'll stop being selfish. And one day I'll stop having these like fits of rage. You know, one day. One day I'll stop gossiping, you know, one day, like I'll stop. It's just part of my life though right now. You know, it's just part of who I am. I'm tired, I'm busy. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Meaning, the point of your life is to become like Jesus. It's not to advance in your career. It's not to get married. It's not to have kids. It's not to buy a house. You know, it's not to go to some school, this school, that school, get this job, that job. None of that is the point of your life. The point of your life is repentance. It's to become like Jesus. And if that's true, then all of the other excuses that you have to not try to change, I'm not even talking about changing, okay? Because that is largely the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Word of God in you. It's the work of community, right? But if you don't try to change, you don't make an effort, you don't want to, you really got to question whether, one, you're in Christ, and two, if you are in Christ, if you are really just resisting the Holy Spirit, if you're like, nah, Spirit, I don't want you to come into my life and mess things up and make me more like Jesus. I want to 
I want to focus on what I want to focus on right now. I want to focus on school. I want to focus on work. I want to focus on my relationships. I want to focus on this. I want to focus on that. And I just, you know, Holy Spirit, you got you to stay out. That is not the life that Christ has for you. This life of hypocrisy that Ananias and Sapphira were going to try to live for the rest of their lives. Okay? This fake trying to be trying to trying to appear better than they were right like oh now i'm so smart i'm so holy like look what i did we're just like barnabas like them trying to live that for the rest of their do you know i know some of you know right i know that's a terrible life that's a terrible life that is just a burdensome constant anxiety constant weight on your shoulders this constant feeling of being inadequate type of life where you just feel like oh gosh everything's too much and i never want people to find out who i am and i always want people to think i'm better than i am and i'm smarter than i am and i'm you know and that is just this incredibly burdensome life that Jesus doesn't want you to live. He wants to free you from that. He wants you to know that no matter what happens, you are totally and completely loved. You are 100% accepted because of his work. That you have all of the grace and all of the joy and all of the hope of God at your disposal every day, every moment, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing now, no matter what you will do in the future, that all of that is wiped out because forgiveness must precede repentance. Meaning, forgiveness has to come before repentance. It's only when you understand that all of that is already wiped out will you stop doing it so that you'll be forgiven and you'll do it because you're already forgiven because you're already loved, because you're already cared for. That's what Jesus wants for you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the incredible grace and generosity that you show us in the gospel. God, how can we how can we calculate what you have given us in sending your own son, your only son, to die for us, in purchasing for us eternal life? God, not just everlasting life, <clears throat> not just a life that lasts for all time, but a life that is better than any that we could accomplish for ourselves by our own hand. God, thank you so much for that. I pray, Lord, that the truth of the gospel would sink deeply into our hearts, that the power of your mercy, Lord God, would be overwhelming to us, that we would know it, that we would love it, that we would know, God, that we're all deserving of death, and yet you give us life. And I just want to pray, God, for anyone in this room who is tempted, God, who struggles with this hypocrisy, with this desire to appear holy without pursuing holiness, with this want 
with this burden of never feeling good enough or smart enough or spiritual enough or tough enough. God, would you, would you free any hearts in this room? Would you disabuse us of that notion, God? Would you help us to enjoy the free forgiveness that we have in you, the life, the hope, the joy, because of Christ? And would you, as a result of that, God, lead us into repentance until we see you, God, until eternity. We thank you that you are good and that you are holy and that you are generous. May we be and do the same, God, to those in our lives. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.